It's so funny because all of my uh, co-workers will, will call me the OG apprentice. And after Chatri promoted me to VP of consumer products to lead one of his divisions, everyone was joking that it was so hard to replace me that he had to have a whole uh, show. He had to have a whole like reality show to find my replacement. So that was um, pretty funny. But yeah, I mean, a chief of stock role is such an interesting one because honestly, I think it's different for anyone depending on who you are chief of staff to and I, I did a lot of research too when i took up the role like you know what is a chief of staff because i think a lot of people think of chief of staff in a political capacity and really a chief of staff's role is to make you know whoever you're being chief of staff to help them be more successful and in some ways the loyalty is almost to that person as it is more so than the overall organization or the other people that you're working with it's really about how do i empower this person to be a better version of themselves and for chachari that really looked um, more like he had a lot of great new ideas in order to grow one championship and expand its total addressable market and so he had a lot of new business initiatives. So one of it was a one championship expansion into Japan. And then the other was one championship expansion into esports. And so I really headed on um, both of those initiatives. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 78 of the So This My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya. And today's guest is Debbie Soon, co-founder of Hug, H-U-G a Web3 accelerator and discovery platform that she co-founded with Randy Zuckerberg. Debbie's also a startup founder and also the former chief of staff and VP of head of consumer products at One Championship. Now, if you've been following our NFT series, and by the way, if you haven't, you really should, then you will have probably heard about me talk about Hug and also a number of the NFT projects that we will be discussing in this episode. Now, what is Hug? Well, there are three main pillars to it. There is firstly Group Hug, which is its creator accelerator program and currently on its second batch. Some of the NFT members that are part of it include Nicole of Ancients. She was episode 75. Then we have Wild Pixies, a venture DAO founded by Lily Wu that was episode 76 and Curious Eddies, another fascinating education-focused NFT project that I will be featuring in an upcoming episode on this podcast. Secondly, there is Hug Hub, a curate-to-earn NFT discovery platform where its curator club discovers, reviews, and curates NFT projects. They've reviewed over 3,000 projects to date, so you can imagine the wealth of information that's there. And then we have Hitchhug, an early-stage, pre-mint program. But before we dive into the world of NFTs, we're going to take a step back and explore what Debbie did in her earlier Web2 life. That included founding Southeast Asia's first boutique indoor cycling studio, being chief of staff to Chashi Siotong of one championship. And in case you were wondering, yes, she was the OG apprentice. The inside joke among her colleagues at one was that she was so invaluable as Chatri's chief of staff that after she was promoted, Chatri had to launch a reality show called The Apprentice to find her replacement. Debbie also shares how she ended up in LA, why her next startup felt, and how she managed to transition into a Web3 role despite having no relevant experience by making a wish in a wishing well. We then talked about investing in NFT projects, how Hug is different from other accelerators, the question of confidential information being shared outside of Hug, what it's like to raise $5 million for NFT projects in the past one month, and so much more. But before we begin, if you've been enjoying this episode, I would love for you to head to Apple Podcasts or any other platform you're listening to this on to leave a rating and review. 
I read every single review, and it really does help the show to grow. Now, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I was doing my research and I realized that you have a six-word mission statement. Accept the changeable, change the unacceptable. How did that come about? Well, you know, funnily enough, I saw that off watching a bodybuilding competition. So I'm, I'm quite the gym freak, I guess. Like that's sort of part of my hobbies outside of work. And then I was watching a bodybuilding competition and it was one of the athletes said, and it really resonated with me because I think a lot of the times we feel very frustrated about certain things that are outside our control. And I think we get a lot of anxiety around that. So I really like the bit about how we have to accept there are certain things that we can't change. At the same time, like if there are certain things in our life that we feel unhappy with, then it's up to us to change it. And rather than, you know, let things happen to us, really take the initiative and change something that you kind of accept. So I really felt like that resonated with me and, you know, I've adopted it since. I mean, you said that you were very into bodybuilding and I saw that even when you were at university, you were also very into cheerleading. So suffice to say, you're very into sports your whole life. Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny actually because I grew up in Singapore, traditional Asian parents. So my mom actually didn't want me involved in any sports for the large part of my life. When I was in primary school, I was a librarian and I was in the advanced mathematics club as well as robotics club. My mom was very against me um, taking on any kind of sports because she felt it was unsafe. And then even in secondary school, I ended up taking up the performing arts. So I was in the choir and then in high school, I was in drama. So I think it wasn't until when I went to college and, you know, I was living by myself. I was like, I'm really going to embrace my love for sports. And so that's when I took up cheerleading. And how did you go from studying financial engineering and economics to deciding you wanted to do your own startup? And it was Southeast Asia's first boutique indoor cycling studio. Yeah, so I was a GIC scholar, I guess. Sold my soul. <laughs> what I paid for my education. So I was very fortunate with that. And I guess I had to go back and serve a bond. So, you know, was originally quite excited to enter the world of investments and of in finance. But I think very quickly, honestly, within the first year and a half, I realized that this wasn't something that I wanted to be doing for the rest uh, of my life. And so started a startup pretty much as a side hustle that I was really doing on the side. And actually back in the day, I was so scared of my superiors finding out, even though I guess it would have been pretty obvious, but I rented a space near the office, like a five minute walk away from the office so that I would be able to run back and forth from the office, like before work, during lunchtime and like after work as well. Definitely notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, I'm pretty sure everybody knew. And I guess a lot of that desire to be fair did also come from the work that I was doing at GIC because I was in equity. So I spent most of my day really studying good companies. And I spent a lot of my time speaking to successful management teams. And I think I was just really inspired by how people were building businesses that I wanted to build my own business as well. So I felt like I would be in a happier place building businesses rather than studying how other people did it. At the time, I was only 24, 25. So I felt this need to also want to prove to the world that I could do what other people were saying. So that's what kickstarted my journey into entrepreneurship. Weren't you concerned because you were using the bulk of your savings, right, to start this? Yeah, I mean... 
honestly, I look back at those years and I feel like there's definitely a naivety or like blind naivety that I don't think I will ever get again. And I frankly, sometimes I miss it because I think at the time I felt Oh, you know, I'm so early into my career. Like, I guess I'm making like, you know, a decent amount of money. At the time, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a family. So I felt like if there was any time to fail, it was then. And that even in, in the worst case, even if I lost all my savings, like, I still had a job. I would be able to find another job. And I, I guess I could just work my way back up again. If you ask me if I would do it again now, I feel like I'm definitely more risk of us. But I think at the time, it just felt like my calling and, you know, I had no regrets whatsoever. And how do you decide that you needed to exit and to join one championship, which is totally different? It definitely didn't pan out as well as I would have expected. You know, I started a business with my co-founder at the time. And, you know, unfortunately, things got a little bit tricky because I guess my two co-founders were in a relationship with each other. So it ended up getting a little bit complicated. And so I think it got to the point where I decided that it was better for me to just exit a business. And so we ended up selling the company later, like I guess like six months later. And then I actually focused on my work back on GIC for the next two years. I was running that startup for probably about a year and a half to two years. And I was doing that while at the same time also managing a full-time job at GIC. So it's pretty full on. And then not to mention, I, I think aside from being a founder of the cycling studio, I was also an instructor. So... I was also putting in the hours to teach classes and get to know people, um, running the business side of things. I was running social media at a time, at a time like Instagram was like so new. So, you know, it's like running all of that, email marketing, and then like having to go back and like analyze companies and occasionally flying overseas for like conferences. So I think, you know, after exiting the business, I think I just told myself I need to take a little bit of time for myself, focus on my finance career, see what else I can learn. I originally thought that I would leave GIC at the end of my bond. So I, I think in my mind, I thought that at a six-year mark, I'll be out of the door. But I think I ended up having a really great team at the time. So, you know, I realized that there are also different things that makes you happy and, and gives you fulfillment. And at the time, I just really had an incredible boss, incredible co-workers I was working with. So I ended up staying a year longer than I had intended. But I think finally, like when the time came, you know, I knew that it was time to leave. And I was really fortunate enough to be introduced to Hua Feng, who is now the group president of One Championship, he and my brother had mutual friends and he had just been hired by One Championship at the time to be their CFO. And so they were, you know, massively growing the team. And, uh, you know, we got introduced. And as you quite rightly pointed out, I've always been really into sports. So for me, this was kind of fun. It was great. It was like sports media. And, you know, it was a great opportunity to leave the world of finance for the world of startups, like officially. I noticed that one of your roles was being chief of staff to Chatri Siyotong. And I imagine people have an idea what that means because there is the apprentice now. But what was it? Yes. Like? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's so funny because all of my uh, co-workers will, will call me the OG apprentice. And after Chatri promoted me to BP of consumer products to lead one of his divisions, everyone was joking that it was so hard to replace me that he had to have a whole uh, show. He had to have a whole like, reality show to find my replacement. So that was them. Um, Pretty funny. But yeah, I mean, the chief of stock role is such an interesting one because honestly, I think it's different for anyone depending on who you are chief of staff to. And I, I did a lot of research too when I took up the role, like, you know, what is a chief of staff? Because I think a lot of people think of chief of staff in a political capacity. And really, a chief of staff's role is to make, you know, whoever you're being chief of staff to help them be more successful. 
And in some ways, the loyalty is almost to that person as it is more so than the overall organization or the other people that you're working with. It's really about how do I empower this person to be a better version of themselves. And for Chachari, that really looked um, more like he had a lot of great new ideas in order to grow one championship and expand as total addressable market. And so he had a lot of new business initiatives. So one of it was one championship expansion into Japan. And then the other was one championship expansion into esports. And so I really headed on um, both of those initiatives. I was the first, it's actually the first employee of one esports. I was the first person to break ground in Japan. I hired the president, hired like the founding team, you know, found the office, same for esports, you know, hired like the first 10 people, hired the CEO. And so I think in both cases, I really felt I was in a happy place too, because I mean, at the time, one championship wasn't small, like there were already about maybe 150 to 200 people and growing very quickly. But I think within these two areas, I still felt like I was growing something from zero, like I was building essentially a startup within a startup. And so I, I think through that experience, I really, once again, continue to discover my love of entrepreneurship, to discover my love of taking something from zero to one. I had a great time doing both of those projects. What were the main challenges in establishing, say, one esports? I was quite excited to see you do that because my third guest on this podcast, he actually established the esports version of Formula One. And oh my gosh, cool. Yeah, he created it from the ground up, same like you, only you did it for one championship. So I wonder what that experience was like for you. Oh my gosh. I mean, that experience was crazy. And okay, to make things even crazier, both of these projects were happening at the same time. So there was a lot of juggling different priorities and, and it was definitely a crazy, that, that year and a half that I was charging street for stuff before being promoted. That was honestly probably one of the craziest and busiest like 18 months of my life, even more so than juggling the startup, my cycling studio at GIC. So I think that gives you a sense of how crazy it was. But One Championship saw itself essentially as a media platform and it had all distribution as well as the relationships with broadcasters as well as digital platforms. And at that point, you know, the content that we were putting out was essentially and it just mixed martial arts. I guess over the years, they had added on weight high on top of mixed martial arts, like kickboxing. So I guess they were diversifying into other types of combat sports, but it was still very much combat sports related. Everybody that they had hired as well were very familiar with how the combat sports industry worked, like knowing the right managers and athletes. And so going to esports was really a completely different space altogether. And not to mention that like we were growing so fast and so there's a number of events that existing team was also really, you know, they were really worked to, you know, they were at a capacity. So it was really hard to even for them to even contemplate, like, you know, having to take on another product. I, I think it was a really challenging endeavor because I had to learn also the basics about esports and what the community was like. And actually, I guess, funnily enough, like, you know, I think we're going to talk about community a lot more later on. But what I learned in esports was really the importance of authenticity and also realizing that esports, as it is esports, so every game is essentially its own sports and has its own ecosystem and its own set of athletes. So I think it was like a very steep learning curve for me. And also I'm not really a gamer. Like I used to game like many, many years ago when I was a teenager, but since then, I probably haven't really been that excited about any game other than like Pokemon Go when it first came out. So, you know, this was definitely not a natural fit for me. I think my first hire was someone who was from Activision and she was great. So I think I learned a lot from her as well. I think we were fortunate enough due to the one name. It made it a little easier to start having some partnership discussions with game developers. And then we also found an incredible CEO. His name is Carlos and, and he's the CEO of One Esports. 
And together we managed to throw like our first two events. You know, we had a fighting games tournament in Tokyo, which we ran alongside our 100 events in, in Tokyo as well, a mixed martial arts event in Tokyo. And then we also ran a Dota 2, you know, Invitational at the end of the year. So I'll just say that it was a really crazy year, but I learned so much. And, and it's probably one of the proudest things that um, I had accomplished for one. Would you say that life slowed down a little when you transitioned to be VP and launched one shop? Because it doesn't sound like it was any easier. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't think it necessarily slowed down, but I think it allowed me to be a lot more focus because I think I had my own piano to run. First time I actually had my own team. I think that the other challenge of being a chief of staff is that you don't officially have a team and that you are trying to, I guess, execute on what your CEO would like to see done. But in order to do so, you need to rely on a lot of other teams. Uh, so for anybody who is listening to this and is, you know, thinking of being a chief of staff, I would say one of the really important skills required is having great interpersonal skills because it really relied on me needing other people to do like favors for me. I mean, and sure, I could always use Chatri's name and be like, you know, Chatri wants this and do this or else. But, you know, that was never going to be a sustainable way of working with everybody else. So it was a lot of relying on personal relationships and having them prioritize what I needed in order to build both of these businesses. And against all the other KPIs that they had, right, we were having events every other week. We had Lots of Facebook shows, YouTube shows that we had to put out because we were constantly generating so much content. But then once I transitioned into, I guess, managing my own PL, managing my own team, that was different. It was a lot, it was a lot more efficient. I could move much quicker. I could be more decisive as well. I mean, I really enjoyed being a head of consumer products and going into e-commerce. I also love fashion. <laughs> so it was really great, like being part of the creative process. I'm working with a team of designers, designing product, getting all of that into the hands of consumers. I think the most satisfying moment for sure was, um, and this was by this point, it was during COVID, was one day I'm walking around my neighborhood and I see somebody wearing the t-shirt that I had sold and I had designed. So that was like a really like, nice moment. So how did you decide that it was time to leave and to move to LA? Honestly, I would say that it was probably COVID inspired. It was like a COVID like inspired move. I studied in the US. I did grad school in New York City. And ever since moving back to Singapore, I think there was always a part of me that wanted to move back to the US. And the entire time I was at GIC, there were actually some potential opportunities about moving to New York, but it never really happened. And then I think at the time when I left GIC, I found this great opportunity to watch championship. I felt like it was really worth staying in Singapore for. And like I said, don't regret any of it at all. And I think I went through, you know, just a little over a year of running this new business. I had taken it from zero to close to $2 million in revenue in less than a year. And I think at that point, I was sitting there um, in my studio apartment in Singapore and I realized that despite all of that, I still wanted to experience what it would be like to live and work in the U.S. And I think not being able to travel probably also contributed um, a little bit more to that yearning because I, I always like to joke that one of the best things about Singapore is how easy it is to leave. And, you know, because the airport is so convenient from like touchdown to my doorstep is less than an hour. So, you know, you always felt like you could explore somewhere new. And I think I just started feeling a little... Like, oh, I've been doing this now. And I, I know like one year doesn't seem like a long time, but I guess when you're in a fast-paced startup environment, like even a year feels like, oh, you know, three years. And I think having already grown one shop to around like close to $2 million, like in that amount of time, I think I sat there and I thought to myself, what I could really accomplish if even in one year from now, I took that $2 million to $10 million. 
And I realized that I, I didn't feel like I would have learned as much as I would have if I had left Singapore and just started somewhere new and, and see what there is to offer. So it was a tough decision for sure, because um, I had an incredible team, you know, we we're really like family. So, you know, it was like a team of like six or seven of us. And, you know, obviously I had learned a lot from Chattery and, you know, was very grateful for the opportunities that he had given me, but I also felt like it was time for me to kind of discover what life would hold for me. Like if I wouldn't leave kind of like the safety net of Singapore. And I read in the tweet, you said that when you first moved to New York, you nearly stole furniture of a homeless person. What's the story there? Yeah. Oh gosh, that was, uh, so this was 10 years ago. So this was when I, I left college and I moved over to New York City for grad school. I had agreed to be roommates with somebody that I knew from Cambridge. And so he had, I guess, found the apartment first because he was already in New York. And I guess he had taken photos of it and like sent it to me. I was like, sure, fine. I didn't have a lot of money. I needed it to be near my school. And so like, I was like, great, this is within the budget. It's like five minutes walk away from school, like perfect, right? I get there and I guess in the US, it's pretty common for apartments to come completely unfinished, which I guess I'm not really used to. I, I guess I always thought that apartments would come with a little bit of furniture, but I walked in and it was like literally nothing. And all I had was a sleeping bag that I brought with me from the UK. It was my first night there. So I'm just walking around the neighborhood and I see like a, a coffee table, like just a wooden coffee table. And so in my mind, I thought, well, it'd be good to at least have a table so I could put things on it, right? Like, you know, so I guess I stopped picking it up and then a homeless person starts running after me and then starts yelling at me. And I, I guess I was stealing stuff from his home, like his makeshift home on the side of the street. Anyway, I gave him like $10 and also got a radio off and everything was good. <laughs> so suffice to say, when you decide to move to LA, you were a lot more savvy and you knew how things were. Yeah. <laughs> I've been working for 10 years, but yeah. a little bit more, you know, set, get myself set up. What was it like moving to LA? Because you started your own company again from scratch. Yeah, I mean, moving to LA was, it was exciting. And, and frankly, I didn't really have a plan. So I think I had hoped that I would have been able to continue working for one championship, actually, like, you know, remotely, given that I was also running an e-commerce business. But I think at the time, Chachi wanted everybody to stay in Singapore and be close to, you know, management. So, you know, I think we agreed to part ways. And so when I moved to LA, I really didn't have much of a plan. I had packed two suitcases. I packed up my entire Singapore apartment. I didn't know when I was going to be back, but I packed two suitcases. I brought my dog. I really brought my dog. Well, plus he questioned she's like my child but also I was like I know I really need to make it work because it's easy to bring her into the U.S. it's a lot harder to bring her back into Singapore due to the quarantine and everything I didn't even have my visa sorted out at the time I had like started the application process but I didn't have a visa so I was entering the U.S. on a tourist visa I also wanted to take a little bit of a break I pretty much didn't have any break between GIC and one championship I guess I started at one championship a week after I wrapped up at GIT so this was probably like the first real break that I had from working in over 10 years. And I guess, and I had really planned to maybe not do anything for like six months. And then I was fortunate enough to find myself in this venture studio program by a venture capital fund um, that's based out here in LA. And funnily enough, that venture capital fund belongs to Paris Hilton's husband. <laughs> like a one degree of separation away from Paris Hilton. I felt like it was the perfect program for me at the time. Like I said, I don't know if I would have had the same kind of bravado to launch a company from scratch with my own funding, I think, with my own savings. And I, I guess to be fair, I also didn't really have any kind of idea that I felt so strongly about. So the way the Venture Studio Program, we had three months to essentially meet other potential founders, potentially find a co-founder, ideate on ideas together, stress test them, start doing a little bit of early customer testing. And then at the end of the three months, if you up the pitching it, 
the VC may give you some funding and then you can take that funding and continue building it. So I think in my mind, it was like a belly, like, you know, worst case, I go through it three months and I learned a lot and I have to find something else or, you know, best case, I emerge for three months with a new business and some funding and the latter happens. So it was also a great opportunity for me to meet people in LA or like in the US, given that this was still in the middle of COVID. So there wasn't really a lot of opportunity to go out and socialize and meet people. And I read that it was quite difficult for you in terms of you were pitching what 70 VCs and you only got two yeses. So you must have gone through this period of what am I doing here? I think I made the wrong choice. Yeah, I mean, and it was, and it took a while to get there. So, you know, it was three months in the program. So it was a fairly structured program. It was pretty much nine to five every single day with a lot of scheduled presentations and and all of that. I met my co-founder through this program. We graduated from the program in June and then we had a little bit of funding, not much, but we had a little bit of funding that continued to allow us building on the idea, which was a product in women's health. I guess we got to the point, obviously, where we needed to raise more money, but I think we were in a very tricky situation because the amount of funding that we raised wasn't a lot. So we couldn't really have done that much. I mean, it was basically a mobile app that would teach women how to use food to manage their chronic health conditions. And so we didn't have enough funding to build a product and we needed more funding, which is why we started fundraising. But then obviously we didn't have enough traction to raise the funds that we needed to raise. And I guess also because of the nature of the Venture Studio program, they took a sizable chunk of the equity as well as part of them, you know, incubating the idea. It definitely felt like a different kind of emotional tie to it versus say my indoor cycling studio startup because that was, you know, 100% my idea. It was 100% my money. It was 50-50 between myself and my co-founder at the time who, you know, we put equals amount of money in. But, you know, that felt very different because that really felt like my baby. This felt a little bit like it was definitely not a job. So it definitely wasn't like a salary job, but it also wasn't. Adopted like, child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. My co-founder and I, we were essentially fundraising pretty much nonstop for three months or so. Like, you know, every day at four to five, sometimes even like seven calls in a day of just selling itself, selling the idea, selling what we were building. And we were getting a lot of no's. The feedback also, I think, was pretty consistent. It was nothing against us. So they loved us. They loved us as founders. But they, I guess, felt like we were either too early or they felt like the idea wasn't differentiated enough. Both of us are really honest with ourselves. And we looked at a business and we felt that, you know, maybe this is not us. It's just that this is not the right business to be building. And we could continue, I guess, trying to bang on the door and then try and get us across the line. But I think at some point, it really felt like we were pushing like a huge boulder up a hill. And I think we were just reading the tea leaves and, and it was a really tough decision, but I think we felt that the most valuable resource that either of us had was time. And then the more time spent on this, the more time we were taking away from exploring other things that could potentially be more interesting and more valuable to us. And so as a result, we made a really difficult decision to, I guess, close that startup. And we got two yeses, so we could have taken some money and continued trying to build a little bit more. But I think we thought a responsible thing to do was to not take that money, call it time on that, and you know, explore what else was out there. I feel like this is the point where I can say that the Web 2 phase of your life ended and Web 3 phase has just started. So how did you end up discovering Meta Angels? Because that's how it all began, right? Yeah. And, you know, I have to say the irony was that part of the reason why we were getting so many no's at the time from venture funds was that everybody was talking about Web 3 at the time. Everybody was like, you know, people would ask us too, so what is the Web 3 angle to your product? And in my mind, I was like, well, there, there really isn't a Web 3. And I don't think that it should be, right? Like you shouldn't be forcing like a Web 3 solution to something that doesn't have a Web 3 problem. And honestly, even at the time I was faced with this, ugh, you know, like people are just investing in crypto. And like, I was one of those like skeptics or naysayers, if you will. But I guess when we had decided to close down the startup, you know, obviously I had all this free time 
on my hand. I could, once again, take a little bit of time to sit back and figure out what was really important to me. I realized that I was really interested in learning about Web3 and rather than saying that it wasn't great or rather than pooing on it or whatever. And like, you know, it's, it's mostly because I didn't take time to understand it or research it. I had started investing in crypto since 2019, but frankly, I did it in a very passive way. It was more like, all right, I'm just going to take like a certain percentage on my savings and throw it in crypto and just see what happens. Right. So I wouldn't even check it every day. I also bought it at a time where it was starting to go into a bear market. So like, I think at some point I thought I had lost all of my money. And then at one point, I guess I, when I really should have sold, like I made like five times my money and it would have been like, I wouldn't say like life changing, but it would have been nice. <laughs> and like I've also written, but I didn't sell. So I've written it all the way down to over where I bought it at, but you know, once again, like nothing too significant. And at this point I was like, well, you know, I should really understand what I'm doing. And there's no reason why like I can't figure any of this out. I should have the time and the resources to figure out exactly what's going on in crypto and what Web3 is. Honestly, I think it took me two full days of research. And I guess I started going up to Twitter, which is where there's a lot of great resources. I have never really used Twitter before. And on Twitter was when one of the mentors that I had met through building my previous startup, she was talking about Meta Angels. I was like, what is this Meta Angels thing that she had tagged? Is this Cheryl Calone? Yeah, this is Cheryl. <laughs> so Cheryl was one of the mentors that was introduced to us by M13, which was the VC that we were building with all of um, 2021. I see one of Cheryl's tweets about Meta Angels. And I'm like, oh, what is this Meta Angels thing? At this point, I knew crypto. I know what an NFT is, but never really went into like the NFT, like rabbit hole, like explore NFT world. And I guess the one thing that drew me to Meta Angels was that, first of all, Cheryl knew the founders. It's not like they are random people off the internet. And they also happened to know the partner that we were working with at M13 as well. So we had, I guess, really close mutual connections. And I guess I discovered them too at the time when they were pretty early. So when I went into the Discord, it wasn't overwhelming at all because there were only you know, like a couple of hundred people. So it was really easy to get to know people, like just introduce myself. I realized that I needed some help as well because they were starting to amp up their marketing. So I figured the best way to learn is by doing. So, you know, I also volunteered my time to see how to get involved. And I think that's when there was no turning back after that. I love the fact that you said a small crowd was a couple hundred, which when you really think about it, is quite a lot of people. But in the web very well, it is not at all. So the Meta Angels is very interesting because they have this thing called making your wish, right? And that's the thing that changed your life. So can you share a bit about what that is and how it affected you? Yeah, so I mean, I think Meta Angels, they set themselves apart by essentially positioning themselves as a membership community. Through owning a Meta Angels, you'll be able to access the network all of these individuals who are in the community. Allison and Alex, who are the founders of Meta Angels, they are like former tech stars, former Y Combinator. So, you know, they're pretty well connected in the startup world. And so they had a wishing well feature where essentially members could make a wish and then people in the community would see if they can make those wishes come true. It was honestly from anything from like mental health resources or like security tips or like I'm looking for a Discord manager or, or what have you. So I threw... My wish in there, like after this, it was like a very quick descent down the rabbit hole. Within three days, I decided I wanted to go into Web3 full time. And, and I really got hit with this. If I don't do this now, like we're so early in Web3 still that if I didn't do this now, when I have the opportunity to do anything that I wanted, I'll be looking back on this time being like, why didn't I do it? And so... I went into the wishing well and basically just gave a brief introduction of my background, which is you know, I'm an investor, I've been a founder a couple of times. I've built a lot of things from scratch for one championship. 
But my wish is to now go into Web3 full time. The only problem is that I've not actually done anything in Web3 up until that point. Honestly, it was just like a wish, right? Like that's what it was. I'm wishing well. And like nothing really happens for about a week. Like maybe I had a couple of things, but they were all like just very exploratory conversations of nothing very concrete. And then like it's one week later and Randy Zuckerberg, who was an advisor to Meta Angels Project, sees that message and replies to it and says, oh, you know, she's thinking of like looking for someone and then we get connected. And in my mind, it's wild because obviously Discord moves at a million miles per hour and they're like messages after messages. It's impossible to find any. I can barely catch up on things that happened in the last three hours, let alone anything that happened from a week ago. So I don't really know how she found that, but I guess she found that message, replied to it. And, and then the next thing you know, we're connected and we're working together. What was that Zoom call like? What was the initial discussions like? I guess I was kind of nervous for sure. I think I was a little bit starstruck as it is for anybody that speaks to Randy for the first time because you hear all of these incredible things about her. But she is exactly who she is. If you've ever heard her speak or if you've ever um, seen her in a video, she has a naturally infectious energy and she always just makes you feel like you're speaking to a friend. So I think that, you know, at least from my perspective, I felt really comfortable just speaking with her and sharing my story. You know, we hit it off really quickly. Like the interview process was like really short. Like I spoke to her for 30 minutes. I spoke to her GM, I guess, for another 30 minutes the next day. And then next thing you know, like at the end of the week, I had an offer. So I don't even think I sent her like my formal resume. I just sent her my LinkedIn profile. I sent her my Twitter profile, which at the time didn't have that many followers anyway, because I had just started it. But I think she also thought of work that I've been doing for Meta Angels. So all of the marketing stuff that I've been doing for Meta Angels, which like I said, I was doing it really because I had time on my hands. I wanted to learn. I wanted to contribute in whatever way that I could. And I guess she was really impressed by all of the marketing pieces that I've been putting together. And it's, it's ironic because I don't even consider myself a marketer. Like that's not my core skill set, right? I'm more of a generalist. I'm a great operator and I'm a great strategist, but I definitely have like no marketing, like actual marketing credentials whatsoever. But yeah, I think we just really hit it off. And I think we both shared this passion of, you know, really uplifting women in Web3 and in the NFT space. And so I felt like we just connected and hit it off really well. I love that you said that you didn't even have any marketing background because that's the thing for most people who transition to Web3, right? They actually don't have any of the skills sets previously that they're doing. Like I saw that Lorraine, for instance, she's your head curator. Her background has nothing to do with curation community. And now she's doing a fantastic job for Hug. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it's definitely still a lot of misconception that you can only go into Web3 if you're a developer or if you're an engineer. And suddenly there is a shortage of good developers for sure. So we do need more Web3 developers. But there are so many skills from the business world or like whatever anybody's careers that are completely transferable into Web3 because Web3 businesses are just like any other businesses. They're going to need PR, they're going to need marketing. They're going to need strategy operations. And now I guess community is more important than ever. I would say that all of us have been involved in building communities in, in some shape or form. Even when I was running Seven Cycle, my indoor cycling studio, that was a really small community. But even if you have 30 people showing up to a, a cycling class, that's a community of 30 people right there who are going through a shared experience and are clearly chefs have something in common. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. And at the same time, at like 7 a.m. in the morning, riding a stationary bike to loud music. So I think a lot of the times people want to see an exact match. But then I think they don't realize that a lot of the skills that they have acquired through just doing and their experiences are completely transferable. And, and yeah, Lorraine is a great example where, you know, she's been a journalist before. I, I think, gosh, she's got like so many different, like she's worked with like 
Korean like boy band. It's like, you know, she's done a whole bunch of random things. I reach out to her on Twitter, but I guess what stood out to me was her personality and who she was as a person and her passion for the space and how she communicates. And I think good communication is, is such an underrated skill. And I guess that's exactly what we ended up needing for, you know, curation and, and you know, her, her level of like organization. And once again, it was also a very quick interview process. I think it was a lot of based on intuition. I'm a very intuitive person. But then it turns out that like in this case, you know, she's been knocking it out of the park. And we went from offering her a contractor role to offering her a full-time role in basically like two weeks. I just love the fact that you put a wish in the Discord channel and then you transitioned to Web3 and Lorraine sent a tweet saying, I want to work in Web3. And then she got into Web3. That's incredible. As with any startup, what is the problem you were trying to solve? For Hug, we really wanted to solve the problem of discovery for creators. Randy and I were so excited about how Web3 and NFTs have given artists a new, really viable way of living through, you know, essentially finding ways to become an entrepreneur, whereas previously they were just artists. And I think we realized that a lot of creators, you know, their entire life they've been artists, like they're not really business people. And so I think we found an opportunity to really help support them. We felt like Web3 had given creators the infrastructure to succeed, but they were also lacking in some ways the skills to succeed. And that was where we could step in. And so for HUD, we really wanted to do this through two ways. So one of it is the accelerator program. So very similar to the program that I went through as a team the year prior, actually. So I think there was a lot of great relevant experience or learnings I could break from that. But I think we also realized that, sure, we could solve that through mentorship and this program that we put together. But that's also a certain limit to the number of projects that we could help at any one time. And that we wanted something that was scalable. We wanted to do even more. And we wanted to, okay, we can't be at the side of every single project, what else could we do? And so that other big problem that we came about was discovery because right now the world is so noisy. Like Twitter, it's like you're, you're beholden to the Twitter algorithm. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with having to work hard to get noticed. I think in general, that's something we all need to do and be comfortable doing. But I think we felt like there was a way that we could make it easier for creators to be discovered and at the same time also connect collectors to the creators that they were inspired by. That was something worth building. And so that's what we set out to do. It's been I guess two months, but it's, been, it's felt like years already. We are essentially building a platform. I guess the best analogy I would use is that it's a Rotten Tomatoes for NFTs. The access to the platform is gated through an NFT membership pass. So I would look at an NFT not so much as a JPEG because in fact, there are only 20 print types. So we have 15,000 membership passes, but there are only 20 different designs. So I would look at it similar to a Starbucks card. It's the same Starbucks card. It just has a different design on, on the front of it. And so the platform that we're building essentially allows people to write reviews similar to how you would write a review on Rotten Tomatoes or Yelp or TripAdvisor, right? So think of any kind of review and aggregation platform. The only difference is that you're doing it for NFT collections. And while you're writing these reviews, you also earn tokens for your contributions. And in return, you can use those tokens to exchange for more NFTs, get yourself some like pre-sale spots. So I think we're really excited about what we're building here because I think we're really using the technology or the infrastructure that has been provided to us through Web3 in order to reward people for doing their research, right? And I think one of the things that Randy and I talk about is that if you're in NFTs or you're in a Web3 space, you always see this acronym that says D-Y-O-R, do your own research. And so everybody's doing their own research, but Rather than doing it by ourselves, like, you know, once again, why can't we leverage the power of the community and share that research with each other 
and in doing so get compensated for it and uplifting everybody at the same time, which is a very like web three ethos. And you now have a curator club, right? Which is around 300 people. Are you thinking about scaling it? What are the thought processes from 300 to say 3000 is going to be a very different story. Yes. I mean, that's a great, great point. So yeah. So the platform hasn't launched yet. The platform will probably have the beta launching in May. So we needed to really, I guess, get building. And so we thought the best way to do it, once again, in Web3 is to use the community. So we opened up applications to our curator club uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we had 300 applicants who honestly took like on average, like 45 minutes to complete the application, which was like crazy to me because it wasn't even like a very long like application form. It was just that I think people took a long time to be thoughtful with their answers and replying to the questions that we asked. They essentially applied and volunteered to be a part of a curator club. And they have been aggregating information on all of these projects. They have been reviewing each of these projects. And in two weeks, we have over 400 projects and over 3,000 reviews, which is just like insane, just from these 300 people alone. We definitely have plans to scale it. So I guess at scale, everybody that holds on to a membership pass will essentially be part of the curator club. But yes, like I, I think the, the challenge of going from 300 to 3,000, even when I joined Meta Angels, when it was like a couple of hundred people, even though there's a couple, couple hundred people, like there's only X number of people that are online at any one time. So it's still kind of manageable, right? So even if you're talking at like 10% of, of your communities online at any one time, because everybody has other jobs, they're in different time zones. So like you're talking to like 30 people at 10% of 300, is still pretty manageable. I think when you get to 3,000 and now that you're trying to talk to 300 people, or when you get to 30,000 and now you're talking to like 3,000 people, I think all of that, it becomes very challenging. And I think we've always wanted to create this community that was really authentic and also shed in our mission of uplifting creators. And I think that's something that we're going to have to wrestle with. So suddenly we are expanding our current group when we start minting these membership classes in a couple of weeks. But even that process that we have we set about that process, you know, completely differently. We had people put in an application form again. We love our application form. So we had people put in an application form as to why they should get a membership pass. And once again, it was like a really simple form that probably takes like two to five minutes to fill. But we wanted to at least vet who was coming in to make sure that they were really there to support the community and not just there to, you know, buy and like lit, you know, membership passes. So I think we definitely will have a lot more learning to share along the way. And we're still very early in the journey. But yeah, it's definitely something that keeps me up at night. Like, well, how do we maintain this magic that we have built in this group of 300 people? Yeah, and because I think a lot of people who are into NFT, they would be joining lots of discords, but you can only be active in, say, three to five. So how do you ensure that you are one of those three discord channels? Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a great, great question. I think every single community has to think about that. And I think discord is also kind of like the necessary evil where, you know, it's probably not the most efficient way of keeping up to date with all of your different communities. And and like you said, like there are only so many communities one person can be in. I think which is why for, for us, like the platform in our minds is provides true utility that like obviously the community element there for sure. And it's so important. But I think where you really unlock real growth is when community meets utility and we're hoping that through the platform and what we're building and involving everybody in that process. How helpful has your weekly sessions with Randy and everyone else been? Because I've been tuning into that. I'm so glad there is a recording <laughs> and there's like over a thousand five hundred people who attend every single week and it's just really interesting updates all the time. Yeah, I mean, I must say, I think we're kind of blown away how like every week there is something new to announce. I think we are even thinking like, wait, what are we announcing? And so, yeah, you know, I think that's been great for us because we have set aside that one hour every week and we feel like it's essentially our 
I don't want to call it thought meeting. Like, I don't know what the right um, what, what the right analogy would be, but I guess if you would think that if every one of our community is part of a board, it was really sort of our weekly board update, right? Like this is what we're doing, but it's also a great opportunity for us to, you know, share what we're thinking and like hoping that over time we will have also lessons and learnings to share as well. I think right now we're in very much of like, let's build, let's build, let's build. And, you know, I think we're obviously making mistakes for sure, but not perfect. But yeah, it's been great. Like, I think speaking to the community, sometimes involving the community to come up as well and to share their stories and their experiences. So, you know, just been very thankful for that Twitter spaces, I guess, allows us that, that channel of communication with everybody else. You mentioned earlier before that you were doing like 3,000 reviews. Has your thinking changed just in terms of how you analyze NFT projects, having seen 3,000 reviews, which I think is more than most people would have? Gosh, I mean, maybe I've, I've biased the process a little bit, but I guess the reviews, I think we introduced a rubric for this review that is very similar to, I guess, how I think about evaluating NFT projects. And I've shared some of those resources on my own Twitter profile as well. I really look at NFT projects through four buckets. I look at them through the team um, and I really evaluate them the same way I would evaluate a company. And so I guess all of my seven years at GIT um, has paid off in that you know, it's really like giving me some foundation in terms of how I like look at evaluating companies and making investment decisions. But I look at the team because um, especially for an early stage company, the team is the one thing that you can't change, right? You're stuck with a team no matter what. Then I look at the art as well, which I know is subjective, but really I look at how original it is. I think in the NFT space, we see a lot of derivatives, right? Like there was more apes. So if we're going to do like a different kind of ape or like this ape, that ape, you know, and it's just at some point it's like unoriginal. So I look at art that really has like an original point of view. Like it doesn't have to be a specific style. Like I like Meta Angels, which is a little bit more like realistic. I like Doodles, which is like a little bit more cutesy, right? Like, um, so, you know, I don't think there's any kind of specific art medium, but it's just that it has to be differentiated. Then I obviously look at community, which is, you know, the bread and butter of an NFT project is basically who are their customers and what have they done to acquire customers and engage customers. And then lastly, I look at what the actual business plan is and the utility that comes from holding the NFT. Would you say that art, which is what you mentioned, to be an essential factor? Because I heard that Randy say she has a 10-step process of analyzing and art sometimes isn't even in that 10 steps. Yeah, I personally think that like, this is really hard. Art is so subjective, right? Like I could love a piece of art and somebody hate a piece of art. But I think in my mind, even if we felt like a piece of art was like nice looking, but it looked like 10 other different types of projects, it's going to be really hard to pick which out of this 10 that we would want to invest in or we would want to collect or buy an NFT from. Whereas like if it was something that was really differentiated, like even if I hated it, I could guarantee you that if somebody else said that would love it just because it was so unique. So I still think and something that's really important. Randy and I, like, I guess we have like similar tastes too. So we have like different perspectives, but I would say that there were a few times where we are like at complete opposite ends of the spectrum. How do you think about roadmaps? Because I feel like everyone has so many different ideas and it, eventually you're going to be looking at other people's roadmaps and copying some as well. You can only be so original. How original do you want them to be? What has stood up for you so far? I think similar to looking at early stage companies as well, I really look at NFT projects who have identified a problem to solve. And, you know, the space is evolving, right? Like, I think the one thing that we can all agree on in Web3 and NFT space is that it changes so fast. So even something that was successful like a month ago is not necessarily going to be successful today. And the market is also very volatile, right? Like depending on the price of Ethereum or, or what Solana, if you're building on a different blockchain, like all of that also affects the bearishness or the bullishness of the NFT market. And then we're also seeing like 
new projects pop up every day, right? Like I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least like 50 to 100 projects like popping up every single day. Compared to last year, I'm sure that number has like 10x, 20x or whatever that. I don't have the statistic, but I'm sure it's a lot more compared to a year ago. And so I think now it's harder to be differentiated and maybe we will even see some consolidation down the line. I think we've certainly seen that with like, you know, body yeah. and CryptoPunks. So there's no saying that there wouldn't be an opportunity for more consolidation. But yeah, I think when it comes to business roadmaps, I really look at what is the problem that this project is trying to solve and does it have the right team to solve that problem? So for people who are listening to this and are very interested and want to get involved, how did I get involved? Because there's a community curate to own platform they can join. But I think that you've already given out all your passes. So what's the next step? Yeah, next step is definitely to, I guess, keep updated because like I said, we are doing things in a slightly different way. So I would say that most NFT projects, they would say, okay, this is how much we're selling and then they open up for sale. If it doesn't sell out within like a week or like even 48 hours, everybody thinks that this is a crappy project. But, you know, I think in reality, most great businesses are not built overnight. And suddenly like we don't want to be in a situation where we're selling out overnight, but it's going into the hands of the wrong people who don't even understand the project. Because I think the NFT space, unfortunately, is very speculative. So there are a lot of traders who would buy NFTs and then flip them in an hour just to make like 10, 20 cents. And, you know, I think that's not really the culture that we're trying to nurture um, because we're really building something for the long term. We're building a platform that we hope will be able to help a lot of end collectors. And frankly, I think if we can develop an infrastructure that allows people to earn tokens for their reviews, there's no reason why we can't adapt that infrastructure to other types of reviews, right? Like restaurants or like movies or like, imagine you write a review for open table and you get like credits that you can use at your next restaurant and, and everything's on the blockchain. And, and, you know, we're really excited about what we're building. And so we decided that even though we said that we have a supply of 15,000, we're only going to open up a certain amount in the beginning for this first space. So by our estimates, that should be less than half of the total membership passes that we have. And, you know, I think that's also going to allow us to manage our community growth in like a more measured and balanced way, as opposed to cutting you know, the floodgates open and like, you know, there's so many people that we can't even manage them. We don't really know like how to, you know, manage the process anymore. And I think later on when I'll close the first closed beta version is released in May, I think, you know, we'll be in a better position to start um, releasing more membership passes. And, you know, I think we still take curated club applications so selectively, but, you know, on a much more like maybe every week we had about like another five to 10, like in this and during this process. So Lorraine's handling all of that great stuff. So it's nice when you can finally like delegate. <laughs> Fantastic. And do you think about how you're creating a moat around hack? There are lots of people who are definitely creating communities and thinking, oh, I want to invest, but I want to have many brains coming together to think about it. For instance, when I was reading about what Hug is doing, I thought of Lilius on Wild Pixies and they also have their own private channel. They go in, they talk about different investments, they vote on what to proceed with and what to sell. So how are you planning to be unique from other people such that everyone wants to join you and not others? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, a huge fan of what Lily is building, you know, she's building the first kind of, I guess, NFT back DAO that invests in women-led projects in a big way. So, you know, they have a lot of blue chip NFTs like World of Women. And, you know, I think I, I have great respect for how they had they have organized their teams, I guess they call them like workstations, you know, whether it's from legal to development to like marketing and really it's like a great melding of the minds, which I think that there's a lot for us to learn from as well. And, and you know, I think that's part of why Daring Group hugs them. We can teach them what we know, but we can also learn from what they know. But, you know, I would say the one thing that really sets Hug apart is that at the end of the day, we are creative and we are really all about empowering artists. And that's something that's really near and dear to Randy's heart as well, because, you know, she was in Broadway. So she left Silicon Valley to be a Broadway actress and then also a Broadway producer. 
So, you know, she's always felt like a real strong connection to artists. I would say that probably I personally have a less strong connection, even though I was in the performing arts, but I was when I was like a teenager. So, you know, I don't want to like big that up too much. I do love like that's what sets us apart, that we are changing the lives of a whole group of people that, you know, for years they have just been toiling for something that they're so passionate about. And, you know, we're now giving them the economic opportunity to, you know, not just get discovered, but also, you know, with the tools to really help them to build, take that livelihood into a real scalable business, right? You know, we hope that, you know, through some of these NFT projects, we'll see the next billion dollar business. I mean, we really saw like Bored Apes, it's like a multi-billion dollar like NFT project, but they have much bigger visions than that. So how do we help at least one of the projects that's under us, you know, reach that same status as well? Are you concerned in terms of whether information is shared between different NFT collections? For instance, if I was to join yours and I get information that most people don't, but I also happen to be involved in my own NFT collection, I share it over there. I mean, normally if you're investing in startups, you would sign NDA, but in this case, there is no NDA. So is that concern? Yeah. You know, anything that you share in a public setting is not going to be recorded or like, you know, broadcast to everyone. But obviously there's no guarantee that if somebody said something, like somebody talked about a partnership that they had, for example, there's no saying that that's not going to get out. So I think, you know, teams just have to exercise their own discretion where they feel is appropriate. I think on the platform side of things for HubHub, which is the review platform that we're building, we discuss research publicly because these are research that we're doing based on what information is already available to us. And so, you know, I don't think there's anything that's like sensitive over there. And yeah, lighting, we're very open to building in public. I think we feel like we have a secret sauce in really what our values are and we have a really strong point of view, especially about elevating diverse creators. I think that has a huge point of motivation for us, you know, especially in being in, in the U.S. as a woman of color now, I feel very strongly about that, about wanting to amplify voices from marginalized communities. And I think like that doesn't change. And I also say that even though keeping an eye on what other people are doing is important, at the end of the day, the only thing that we can control, and it gets back, to, funnily enough, goes back to what we said in the beginning, is that we have to accept that certain things are outside of our control, but what we can control, we have to do it to the best that we can. We've made reference to the Accelerator quite a few times. So that's Group Hack. How is Group Hack different from your typical Web2 startup accelerator? Or is it not all? I would say it's similar. I would say that there are definitely a lot of similarities from like some of the more popular accelerators out there, whether it's Y Combinator or Techstars. I think there are a lot of like materials or resources that, that we kind of pulled from there. I would say that probably the difference is that we do understand what it is to be artists. Uh, you know, so Michael, who is on our team, who is leading Group Hug, like he's been a creative producer for, you know, many years. He also produces Broadway shows. So he spent a lot of time working directly with artists. And I think we are able to speak to artists in a way that a traditional accelerator would not be able to. You know, I think we spend a lot of time um, talking about like what the art means to you and like how you as an artist would describe your art and share your perspective with the world. I would say the other thing that's different is that there is a huge emphasis on community and what we do to foster healthy community growth. And so I think those are probably the two things that you know, set us apart from the usual accelerators, but definitely a lot of the core business strategy stuff, you know, that will be similar. I want to talk about the curation as well because you've had two batches so far and I was amazed that a lot of them are my past guests and my future guests. So you have like Wild Pixies from Lily, you've got Asians who's just joined Nickel and I'm interviewing Mai from Curious Eddie. So they're all very different. How did you decide that they would be a part of your accelerator? 
Oh, gosh. I mean, honestly, they're all great projects. And, you know, we wanted them to be differentiated. Obviously, we didn't want to feel like any project was competitive with each other. But really, it goes back to that same metrics, right? Like, whether it's a team, whether it's the community or the business. And, you know, for each one of them, I can talk about how they're all, like, differentiated, right? You know, I think Asians, for example... Like I think they have a very strong point of view from the art and that it's very focused on Asian representation and, you know, the diversity across Asian representation. They are also, you know, based in Malaysia. So, you know, they have a strong kind of Southeast Asia following. So, you know, very excited about what Nicole and her team are building there. You know, when I look at Wild Pixies, we talked about Lily. I think her team has really executed really quickly in terms of like putting all the right pieces in place, leveraging the community to help them further some of the things that they're thinking about, whether it's legal, like dev, like I said. And then when you look at Curious Eddies, their business is beyond the NFT project. They're building a whole learn-to-earn model with, with the outward mission of onboarding, you know, the next million people into crypto and into Web3. So I would say that all three of them definitely check all the boxes of like team, art, community, like business. I would say for the three of them, like certain bits of it are like stronger than others. They definitely share in having all of those check boxes tip. What have you observed are the biggest needs that all these NFT owners are needing? I think learning how to pitch oneself is probably a great skill that I think we could continue to develop and even even myself, right? You know, I think this is an area of constant development, but I think projects are looking to go out and raise more money, whether it's through doing another collection and raising money for the community or whether it's going to venture capital funds and raising money. And, and from my experience of pitching 70 different VCs, sometimes it's also how you're telling that story and whether you have the data to back that story up. And so, you know, I think even with Curious Eddies, like Brandy and our team has worked really closely with them to refine their pitch, you know, when they go out and raise funding. A lot of times it's like all of the ingredients are in place, like all of the stuff, all of the things that they've done, like, you know, people can see it, but how do you string all of that together into a cohesive story so that it gets people really excited about what you're building? I read that you have helped your projects to raise over $5 million in VC funding, which blows my mind because you've only just started like a month ago. So what have you found that investors are looking for when NFT projects come to them asking for funding? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's going to be interesting and I and definitely don't think every single NFT project will have the opportunity to become a venture-backable business. So I think it really boils down to what is the ultimate goal? It has to be more than the JPEGs, right? It has to be more than the art in the community. There has to be something more than that. So honestly, I would say that out of all the NFT projects, it wouldn't surprise me if like less than 1% of them would even be a candidate for VC funding. But, you know, I think it really is about proving that there is a problem to solve. And, you know, I think in venture, we always talk about, firstly, is there a problem market fit? Like, have you discovered a problem that the market feels is worth solving and there's a big enough customer base that feels like that's a problem we're solving. And then secondly is what you're building is their product market fit, right? And I think the more that you can prove that there is product market fit, you know, which you already have done, which a lot of projects have done within a small community, but you know, an NFT collection typically has 10,000 pieces. They have like maybe 6,000 holders. Like how do you prove that you can scale from that 6,000 people that are holding onto the NFTs into something that's much backable? Because I think VC, unfortunately, the name of the game is scalability, right? Every venture capital investor is looking to see how they can 10x their money from today in the next like five years. So how can you tell that story to show that you are taking it from just an NFT collection to something much bigger? Do you have a sense of at what point is an NFT collection ready to pitch? Is it pre-mint? I mean, most of them, like for Asians, for instance, when they launched, they didn't even have a roadmap and look at where they are now. 
Yeah, no, I mean, definitely post-mint. I don't think every single NFT project has to raise, right? Successful mints can bring in like a couple of million dollars right off the bat. That is essentially a fundraising. And I think increasingly we will start seeing people use NFTs as a way of fundraising, as a way of crowdfunding, as opposed to going down the traditional VC route. So I would say that, first of all, VC funding isn't for everyone. Um, really depends on what their roadmap or the plan is. And then secondly, maybe in the future, I think part of the Allure Web3 is that there may not even be a need for institutional funding and there's a way to get funding from the community, which I think it's also like a beautiful thing because it is also democratizes access to funding, which is, you know, what Web3 is all about. I think I would ask every single NFT project to kind of figure out like what is their long-term plans, like what's their long-term vision, how big do they want this to be? I mean, when I started Seven Cycle, I had no intention of it being a VC backable business. I think I always felt like it would be something that I would maybe have like two to three studio locations, make some like nice passive income from it. But like it wasn't meant to be full cycle and roll out across all these agents. That was never really the plan because like all of that takes like a different kind of growth and different kind of funding for that. When you think of building a Web3 business model, massively incorporate Web2 elements. Because for instance, I'm thinking of Asian again, when I was speaking to her, she said, oh, I really need to establish a legal entity because most of the companies here, they are going to laugh me out of the room if I don't have a company. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, no, I think definitely there's certain things that like legal entities are like really important in order to protect like any kind of personal liability. So I think Nicole's definitely thinking about it in the right way. And I think there are a lot of things from the web to world that will have relevance. And I honestly think that in the near term, we'll actually see more of a web 2.5 web. 2.75, I guess. I don't know how far along the spectrum we would be, but I guess definitely a hybrid model. Web 2.5, I guess, like even the DAOs, if everything is decentralized, but no one's actually executing or making the final call as to when something gets pushed ahead, like it would just be a lot of noise and not actually anything being done. And I think that, you know, we're still trying to figure out what are the right governance structures for DAOs and how do we track contributions? How do we sufficiently motivate everybody to be an active member of the DAO? So, you know, I think that there will be some form of hybrid, I guess, implementation. And I think part of it too, is a little technical where we are from a technical development standpoint. So the full Web3 solution, that can be very costly because of the cost it takes to use a blockchain or what they call like gas prices, right? So the amount of money it takes to run everything on Web3 may actually defeat the purpose of you know, the user earning the tokens, right? If it has to cost me $50 to claim 10 tokens into my wallet, but the 10 tokens are only worth $10, then it doesn't make any sense, right? Versus the Web 2.5 model would be I'm tracking the actions not on chain, I'm tracking on a database on the back end. And then I add drop the token. So that's kind of like a web 2.5 where you're still earning. There is that web three element, but in reality, it's not fully web three since I'm still running that on a centralized database on the back. So I guess those are some things that we're considering. I mean, we haven't decided yet and there are obviously different technical solutions, but I guess those are some examples where I think both from a technical standpoint, as well as a governance standpoint, you know, I don't know if we're necessarily at a point to hit like full web three mode. Another thing I want to talk about is just partnerships, because I realized that a lot of your people in the cohort, they have amazing partnerships like Boss Beauties. Lisa was featured in Coinbase. She has partnerships with Barbie and Neiman Marcus, Women Rise, Curious Eddies. They all have amazing partnerships. So from your observation, what is the best way for an NFT founder to approach this idea and pitch and get partnerships? I think it goes back to why storytelling is so important. And what is your story and why are you different from the thousands and thousands of NFT projects that are out there. And I think part of our program and teaching people how to tell their stories, identifying what their brand values are. And I think many NFT projects 
at least a lot of the ones I've come across, if I ask them straight off the bat, like, what are your values? What are your brand values? I'm not sure how many people would be able to answer that. And I think if you look at Meta Angels, they're probably like a great example where from day one, their website already said what their values are. You know, it was like transparency, it was like generosity, as well as like accessibility. Everything that they've done has been centered around those three values. And I feel very few projects actually already know like what their North Star, what their guiding principles are. Even at Hug, like we went through that process really early and we want to demonstrate leadership, but we're doing that in a joyful, welcoming way. But we're also, you know, extremely perceptive and brilliant. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we use to shape our brand identity. So I would say, yeah, figure out what the story is, figure out how you're differentiated. And then also put yourself in the shoes of this brand, right? What problem is that brand trying to solve? Like at the end of the day, we must all be here to solve problems and not doing partnerships for the sake of doing partnerships, because at the end of the day, that's not something that's going to be replicable or like to, or to have that partnership being renewed, you know, even if you manage to sign up for the first time. Can you give an example of one person who's doing something Web3 that really excited you recently? Oh gosh, so many. I mean, I, I will say that I'm really excited about what Curious Eddie's is building. And, you know, obviously can't wait for you to speak to Mai for her to share a little bit more about what they're doing there. But already they have delivered so much utility to their holders. They have a portfolio tracker that you can only access if you are an Eddie. They have like a virtual trading game and like you can also like mint, like you can pretend mint an NFT. So it teaches you to go through the process before you do it for the real the first time and so that you don't get scammed. So, you know, I'm really excited about what they're doing. Actually, like we're also really excited to see how other big brands are approaching the space. Especially I spend a lot of, I was a big Shopify customer when I was building one shop. So I'm really excited to see all of the things that Shopify is doing in a Web3 space and token gated and using token gated commerce to really capture greater customer loyalty on the blockchain. So I think all of that's like really interesting and excited to see how we could continue to partner with Shopify maybe sometime down the line when we have like built up our brand even more. And it's like excited to see how even Ledger, like a hardware wallet, how are they embracing the consumer side of things? Because right at the moment, I think they're considered like a necessity in that, okay, we all need higher security, but... Is there a direct-to-consumer play there where we're like buying Ledger wallets as a way of showing off something, right? Showing off that we're part of the community. Once again, that's kind of like a Web3 meets Web2 world where we're not just buying the wallet, we're buying something more than that and we're buying it because we're consumers and we love pretty things. For people who want to get stuck into the Web3 world, there's obviously too much information out there. Do you have any recommendations in terms of who to follow, where to go just to get stuck in? but I still get good quality information. Yeah, I mean, definitely follow us <laughs> at Hug, the Hug XYZ on Twitter. But yeah, I mean, I would say Twitter is your best friend in terms of having a lot of great resources. I think certain projects as well, like Curious Addies of Zen Academy, which is Zeneca's community or project, they have a lot of great resources for anybody that's trying to get onboarded. Odyssey DAO is another great one where they're a DAO that's bringing a lot of great educational content. In the early days, I actually signed up for their email marketing series that was pretty cool. It's called like a seven-day guide to NFTs, for example, a seven-day guide to like DeFi. And every day for that seven days, you get like a two-minute read about what it is. And I found that like really useful. Like it doesn't take a lot of time, but it's enough to kind of pique your interest to want to dive in more. So I think all of those are, you know, great resources that I would recommend anybody go check out and just spend a little bit of time on Twitter where it can be a little bit intimidating. But I think once you find the right people to follow, you know, you just keep discovering more and more great stuff. Just before we wrap up, I wanted to ask this one question that I noticed from one of your tweets. What does a Web3 dating app look like? 
this is my new business idea. So if anybody wants to fund it <laughs> or incubate it, well, I mean, I think it's funny because we always talk about how in Web3, your wallet is going to be more symbolic of what you have done and who you are. Just like how NFTs have become a representation of who we are on the virtual world. We were joking about like brainstorming this like dating app where instead of it being linked to your Facebook or your social media profiles, your web two profiles actually linked to your wallet so that you can kind of see what NFT somebody has collected and not just NFTs, right? I think in the future, we will have, you know, any DAO contributions onto your wallet as well. As you see, it's almost like a proof of work, right? It's proof of work that could be even more legitimate than LinkedIn because, you know, anybody can say that. They did such and such on LinkedIn, but they don't actually have the proof. Whereas on the blockchain, you can actually see what somebody has done. So it would look exactly like Bumble or like Tinder or whatever, like these things, which I, which I don't use because I have a partner. But, you know, you would swipe right or swipe left on this. But instead of the person's photo, it would be a picture of their avatar, which would be an NFT. So I also consider it like love is blind, but as I'm not seeing anybody come to me, you see like an ape or you see like a boss beauty and that's how you're matching with people. I mean, the problem with that is that once you make one mistake, it's there forever. <laughs> that's true too. <laughs> so Debbie, I have loved this conversation. Thank you for being with me. I love to end all my conversations with the same questions. So the first is this, do you feel like you have found your why? Yeah, I can definitely feel that way. Like I said, I've been in startups. I founded my first startup when I was 25. At that point, I really did find my why. I had so much fun building Seven Cycle, it was called. And it was really such a beautiful community. I met a lot of friends. Some of my friends, my closest friends, I knew from Seven Cycle. Even though I had a great time at one championship and learned so much from that experience, I would say that I've never really felt like I was exactly where I needed to be. And then likewise, like I mentioned earlier, when I was building this other women's health, it was weird. It was like, like you said, like an adopted stepchild. You know, like it felt like this weird tension there. And, you know, I would say that in the Web3 space, I suddenly feel this potential that I'm also wanting to step into that potential. Whereas I felt like in the past, I may have shied away from it. And now I feel like, oh, you know, I do want to step into the spotlight a little more because I want to share the story and I want to touch the lives of so many people. And I really feel in Web3, I can do that in a way that I could never have done before. I'm really, really excited about that. Assuming that everything that you want happens the way you want it to be 10, 20 years time, where would you envision yourself to be? It's so funny because I can't even look beyond three months in the Web3 space <laughs> like crazy, but I want Hug to be really successful. You know, I want to be able to look back on the time to know that we help change the lives of so many people, whether it's somebody who is entering the space of collecting NFTs for the first time or whether it's an artist who is, is embracing Web3. I think we're already starting to see some early signs of that, even though we're only two months old. But, you know, I really want to be able to look back on the time and realize that we have solved the income gap for women and marginalized communities. And, you know, Hug was a part of that. I mean, Hug's not going to solve every single problem the world has, but, you know, at least we can look back on that and realize that, oh, we did you know, contribute to solving their problem in a really meaningful way. Beyond that, like I'm always passionate about empowering other women. So, you know, the more women that I can get connected to and be a kind of inspiration and mentor to that, you know, I would love to know that in, you know, 10 years time, I have played that part. And whether it's my story or whether it's connecting with them directly, I have been able to help guide them to make better career decisions that makes them feel like they are also finding their why. And I would like to help other people find their why too. <laughs> And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? 
I'm really proud of being Singaporean and I'm really proud of where I came from. Part of the other thing that I've really enjoyed too is that I, in some ways, feel like I'm flying the Singapore flags. So even though I'm, I'm based out here in LA, you know, my family and my friends are still back home. And in some ways, I want Singapore to get noticed. I want to support other Singaporeans doing incredible things. I want to be one of those Singaporeans doing incredible things. When I was growing up, I always felt like I, not that I resented being Singaporean, but you know, like we were like a small country and everything. And, you know, I went to college overseas and people never even heard of Singapore this was like back in like 2010, right? So 2008, like no one even knew what Singapore was. Obviously, a lot of time has passed and Singapore is on the map more than ever. But I think the more that I can do to kind of fly that flag high and represent, it's something that I would really be excited to do. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I think grit is an important one, like not being discouraged when things don't go your way and recognizing that any bump in the road is really an opportunity to learn. I constantly have to remind myself too. And actually, to be fair, like, you know, Chatri used to tell me a lot of that too. It's humility and also being open to learning and feedback. It's natural that the more successful that we get, I guess the less feedback that we hear is just what happens in any organization. The more you rise to the top, in general, people seem to get scared of you and so they get more afraid of sharing feedback and without feedback it's really hard to learn and to incorporate that and you start having more and more blind spots aside from grit and having to push through all the obstacles and all the things that are thrown your way I think it's also when things are going well like how do we stay humble how do we constantly be receptive to new feedback and new information and you know I think those are two really important qualities to have. Did Chashri have ways of staying humble that you've learned and we can learn? <laughs> That's a good question. I think, no, I think to be fair, I think he's always very aware of that. Like I said, it's definitely something that he has, he tells everyone that in the company that has risen. To be fair, it's easier said than done for sure, because as one gets more successful, you know, one also feels like that they know better than other people, right? One thing that I did learn from doing something that I do believe in as well is also having gratitude, like looking at how far you've come and being thankful for where you are and recognizing that this is not something that you have to do, it's something that you get to do. And I think once you realize that you're in that position, it kind of brings you back down a little bit and that helps you stay humble as well. And uh, where can people go to find out more about you and what Hug is doing? You can follow me on Twitter. That's probably where I'm most active. Unfortunately, it's really hard for me to maintain more than one social media account at a time. So for any of my friends, my, my Instagram is more of like a personal social media account. So for any of my friends who are on Instagram, I'm sorry, I'm still alive. I'm just on Twitter, but I am at DebSoon, D-B-S-O-O-N on Twitter. And I'll add all those notes so people can find it. And is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't covered so far? Oh gosh, I mean, I feel like we've had such a great extensive conversation. But yeah, I guess for anybody who's listening, if you're not in Web3 yet and if you're intimidated, don't be. One of the things that I'm most excited about Web3 is that we're still so early and this is the one opportunity that we have to build a world that we want to live in and not just for ourselves but for generations to come and, you know I'm a child of the late 80s you know I think we always felt like we were too late right we complained about like Web1 we complained about Web2 we complained about how things are so unfair we're early enough in Web3 to prevent us from making the same mistakes so if this is something that feels intimidating or you feel like you don't really care, like I would hope that you can come to care and we can all meet each other and really make this world a better place through Web3. And that was the end of episode 78. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismyy.com forward slash 78. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting one of the most renowned VCs around who has invested in and is board member of quite a few highly recognizable companies. 
Some of her portfolio companies include Con, Cameo, the honest company founded by Jessica Alba, Goop by Gwyneth Paltrow, House by Lady Gaga, Autograph by Tom Brady, and Girlboss by Sofia Maruso. Now, as you can imagine, we talked about things like how Lightspeed spots new trends ahead of the curve, what it's like to work on celebrity-founded companies, including the early days of building and launching House with Lady Gaga, what the leading indicators of a true brand are, how she evaluates whether a celebrity intends to be a serious long-term founder, and what engaged followership looks like. Want to know when this episode's released? Well, just subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating and review if you haven't done so already. See you next Sunday.